0: Kong was the only long-gown customer to drink his wine standing. He was a big man, strangely pallid, with scars that often showed among the wrinkles of his face. He had a large, unkempt beard streaked with white. Although he wore a long gown, it was dirty and tattered, and looked as if it had not been washed or mended for over 10 years. He used so many archaisms in his speech, it was impossible to understand half of what he said. He was nicknamed Kong Yiji.
1: I'm David Rennie the Economist Beijing bureau chief, and I'm here with Alice Su, our senior China correspondent based in Taipei. This week, we're talking about the story of Kong Yiji, written in 1918 by one of China's greatest writers, Lu Xun.
0: From gossip, I heard that Kong Yiji had studied the classics but had never passed the official examination. With no way of making a living, he grew poorer and poorer until he was practically reduced to beggary.
1: This week... We're asking, why has this 100 year old short story caused an argument between young people and the Chinese state?
0: This is Drum Tower.
1: From The Economist. Alice, how are you doing? How was your week?
0: Hey, David, I am well. My week was very good. I've had a friend visiting Taiwan for the first time, and we got to go to a dance performance over the weekend by this really famous dance group called Cloud Gate. They do these traditional Chinese dances, but they've adapted them to tell the story of Taiwan. So it was really beautiful, and I enjoyed it very much.
1: Sounds like a disgraceful separatist and splittism uh, to me, <laughs> sitting here in Beijing. That sounds like a fan lia zi de but perhaps I've just been in Beijing too long. Yeah. How about you, David? So I've been travelling and I've been taking trains and domestic flights and there's a real shift. Suddenly, Chinese domestic travel has taken off. There was a, a while where airports were still weirdly empty and you sort of thought, I don't you know, are people really over the pandemic or not? But boom, it's back. Like the airports are heaving and so are the railway stations. So that's my macroeconomic indicator for this week.
0: Yeah, actually, speaking of the economy, it is encouraging to see that kind of travel booming again, consumer spending back on the rise. But actually, what we're talking about this week is one of the discouraging parts of the Chinese economy, which is youth unemployment and the problem that so many young people are, are unable to find jobs. And to get into that topic, we wanted to bring in the story of Kong Zi, which is one of the best known works in Chinese literature. David, have you read it?
1: I have just read it, because to my shame, although I have read other short stories by Xun, this one I had not. But in fact, inspired by your excellent piece in the last week's Economist, I went and dug it out and read it. And it was very interesting, actually. Genuinely kind of revealing.
0: No, that's great, because then we'll have a fresh take. I actually read it back in middle school in Shanghai, so I was surprised to see that it was trending on China's internet recently. One of the most popular videos that went viral was this music video called Yangguang Kailang Kongizi or sunny spirited optimistic Kong
1: Yangguang Kailang oh, 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 oh.
0: It's taking this story of this man named Kong Kongizi who studies for the imperial exams and he wears the long robes of a scholar but he can't find a job and he actually becomes a beggar and the video is comparing modern day young people to kong Yiji and saying kind of like i'm this sunny spirited kong Yiji, and it has all these lines talking about how i'm studying so hard but now i'm just a delivery guy and it's sort of drawing this comparison between the man in the story who's overeducated but unemployed and young people today
1: and It's really interesting to see the classic signs of a sort of unequal old society of the person pulling the rickshaw with the rich guy behind him, and then it goes straight to the delivery guys on their scooters. It's yeah. not exactly the approved state media vision of today's China.
0: Yeah. And the key point of this story, I think you have to really understand this to understand all the conversation that's going on about it online. So the story is set in this tavern. In this tavern, there are two different groups of customers. There are the educated elite who wear these long scholar's robes and they sit inside and drink wine and they're more comfortable. And then there are the poorer, basically working class customers who are wearing short robes and they all stand outside where the drinks are cheaper. And Kongizi is this exceptional character because he's the only one who wears the long robes of the scholar but can't afford to sit inside and he's standing outside. And so this whole symbol of the man in the long robes wanting to look like a scholar, but you know his robes are actually really tattered and torn um, and he's actually standing outside with all the other poor people. That's become something that a lot of young college graduates are relating to today.
1: And that's an amazingly bitter thing for a college graduate to relate to, right? Because the whole point of the short story is that Kong Ji never even passed the lowest level of the imperial exam. So he's basically not only a kind of marker for someone who's overeducated but can't find a job, he's also a kind of symbol of failure. And the driving energy of the story is how many of the customers in the wine shop mock him. There's a real bitter sort of black comedy edge if you're today's graduates comparing yourself to someone like him.
0: Yes, it's very self-deprecating. Basically a lot of people were just commenting with this hashtag kongiji wenshe, kongiji literature and telling their own post-graduation sob stories saying like we all studied this story in middle school. We all remember this critique of this pitiful character. But I never thought that I would find that I am Kong easy today. I'm the person who has studied so hard, spent all these years in school, and now I'm unable to find a job. I'm really struggling. And it's kind of a, a way for people to make fun of their situation, but also, in some ways, a, a little bit of a cry for help.
1: And Alice, do you think that part of the energy that's really kind of driving this debate is that in every country, having a good degree from a good college is meant to help you get ahead, But it's a kind of credential, and it doesn't make you a better, more virtuous person that you have this degree. It's just you went through those studies. But I think it's fair to say that in China, to generalize, the culture, not just now, but going back centuries, places this extraordinary moral framing around education, maybe because the body of knowledge that you have to learn to pass a traditional Chinese exam is so vast that just being clever isn't enough. To get a really good score in the imperial exams and become a Mandarin, or today to do really well in the ferocious entry exam to University of the Gaokao, particularly if you're from a small, poor town in the middle of China, that's a kind of mark of incredible self-discipline and diligence. And it's almost like sort of watching someone being trained to be a monk, right? To pass a Chinese exam, you have to submit to this vast body of intimidating and often very boring kind of rote learning. And this is a country that has statues to long dead scholars, right? It takes the idea of the kind of the diligent scholar unbelievably seriously. And you're meant to deserve something when you've gone through that kind of rite of passage.
0: I do think there's something cultural about it. There's something very Confucian. And it's like, if you're a good student, it's not just that you're smart. It's that, you know, it's a mark of your virtue. And huai like bad student, is very, very bad. Whereas, and I always felt growing up like, oh, in the West, it's almost like if you're too good of a student, oh, it's like you're too nerdy. Like it's It doesn't carry that same weight. And I think that's also is part of this social reality in China that if you're a good student, you know, you're on your way up.
1: And that is so different from the kind of the Western literary tradition, right? I once read this very interesting Marxist attack on the Harry Potter series based on the (laughs) idea that Harry Potter is the exact thing that is wrong with the British cultural sort of attitude to education, that Harry Potter is lazy, doesn't do his homework, but he ends up saving the world because he has this aristocratic blood and he was always kind of born to be the best. And the nerdy Hermione should be the hero. (laughs) I think Hermione would do better in China than Harry.
0: Yeah, for sure. And actually I don't know if there are any statistics to back this up. I'm pretty sure Hermione is the most popular character in the Harry Potter series in China because she is the star student. She's the best. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back to Kongizi, that sunny spirited Koisi video, it was viewed three million times, but then it was censored. And the user who made that video also had his account suspended for two weeks.
1: And there's a reason why the authorities are not mucking around, right? Because actually the brutal numbers are bad. So youth unemployment among people who live in cities is nearly 20%. So nearly one in five Chinese between the age of 16 and 24 can't find a job. And actually, if you are out of work for more than three months, you fall out of the statistics. So the real numbers are even worse. And a lot of those are college graduates. There's some scholars who talk about maybe two thirds of them are. So these are people who have done the hard work, got the good scores, and still those opportunities just aren't there for them.
0: Yeah, you're right, David. There's a real problem here, right? These staggering rates of youth unemployment. But you know, one reason why this meme became so viral and spread so widely is because actually, about a month ago, state media issued their own commentary and their own critique of the Kongzi meme, and that really made a lot of young people very angry. So CCTV, state television, and the Communist Youth League both issued these commentaries where they were saying, basically, Kongzi is to blame for his own fate because he couldn't let go of the airs of a scholar and he was unwilling to change his situation by working hard. And that long scholar's robe that he's wearing, it's an item of clothing, but it is also a shackle on a person's spirit. And in essence, what the state was suggesting is that if you can't get a professional job, you should stop complaining and just take off that scholar's robe, put on a short robe and go do a worker's job.
1: And what's remarkable about that is that that's the party taking the traditional moral framing of you work hard and you deserve something at the end of it and turning it on its head, right? The merit is now people who study hard and then don't particularly care what kind of job they end up doing.
0: Yeah, and in fact, state media has also been promoting stories of ideal young people who achieve success not through studying that leads them to a better job and a better place in society, but through you know their hard work. There's this video that also spread really widely recently of a young couple, you know, in their mid twenties, they're living in EU and they have two children, and they're selling this potato dish and teppanyaki tofu in a night market, and they're live streaming and they're working really hard. You They wake up early, they work until late at night, and CCTV made this video of them. They talk about how they made more than 9,000 RMB in one day. And at one point, the woman says, you know, I could never even have dreamed of this. I wouldn't even dream of making this much money in a whole month of office work. But now I've made it in one day. And, you know, I feel so accomplished.
1: If you believe the video, they are shifting. It was like a quarter of a ton of potatoes every day. And they're live streaming the cutting of the potatoes into crinkle fries. But, you know, if they're claiming that they're making... $1,300, 9,000-something yuan a night.
0: Yeah, it's an incredibly high amount. That
1: seems like a lot of money.
0: Yeah, I mean, you sound a little bit disbelieving, and that was the reaction of a lot of Chinese people who saw that video and started critiquing it and saying this number is basically impossible. And actually, after a lot of criticism, that couple, they were interviewed by another Chinese media outlet, and they did admit like, okay, actually, we don't make that much every day. It was a special day. We made more than usual. And then a lot of netizens started making other videos like this one. So someone goes to another night market in Nanning, another southern city, And they ask another young couple, you know, how much money do you make? Is it possible that you can make 9,000 yuan in one night? And they say, are you kidding? Like, that would require us selling 900 servings of teppanyaki tofu every day, and we sell more like 500 a day. And they also talk about how actually working in a night market is really unstable and unpredictable.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. So you're seeing like the public fact-checking the propaganda machine. Propaganda machine's cold pitches. The arrogant scholar was a beggar because he didn't want to get a proper job. But if you just go and work hard, look at the wealth and riches that will fall into your hands just by kind of rolling up your sleeves.
0: Yeah, and I think that really irks a lot of young people because young people in China are working really hard and they have been working hard for so many years. And their argument is that, like, it's not that Kong Yiji was lazy and it's not that we are lazy, but it's just that society is changing and it's gotten so much harder for us to get a job. In fact, there was this very refreshing moment recently when Hua, who is one of China's most famous novelists, was asked about Kong Yiji at a forum. And someone stood up and said, some people say the reason Kong Yiji didn't succeed is because he he was unwilling to take off his scholar's robe. What do you think of that?
1: And
0: Ru Hua circled around the question at first. He said, This is literature and it's very difficult to interpret. But then he got to the point where he said, The reason why everyone is talking about this is because there is a job shortage. And he gave this example about how someone he knows at a publishing company recently announced six job openings and then received six thousand applications. And a lot of those applicants were people with master's or PhD degrees.
1: And so he says
0: there are more than 10 million college graduates expected this year. Think about all the money that parents have spent on their children's education from nursery to primary school to university, masters, and then once they graduate, they just go into job. That they could have had, you know, at age 16 without all that. And then at the end, he says the only way to solve this so that Kong Yiji doesn't need to take off his scholar's robe is that the economy has to recover. We have to return to the path of high-speed growth. And that's
1: the only way. That's such an interesting take because as a point about literature, he's right. This is a great short story. And like a lot of good literature, it's not bossy. It doesn't tell you whether Kong Ji is to blame or not for his face. He's a kind of tragic figure, but embedded in that short story, which was written at a time of weak governments and warlords and street protests about foreign powers bullying China, Liu Xun pursues the ideas that have always interested him about how unequal and unfair that China was. And so even the narrator, who's like this boy of 11 or 12, talks about how he can't be fired because someone powerful recommended him for the job. So it's about connections The opposite of the society that the Chinese Communist Party promised to build, where if you work hard and do the right thing, you can climb the ladders of opportunity. And to talk about that final point that Yu Hua makes about the only solution is for very rapid growth, that's not going to happen, right? You know, at a basic matter of macroeconomics, we aren't going to see China returning to the old growth rates of 7, 8, 9% a year. And so the Communist Party actually has quite a serious problem reordering people's expectations about what is a fair society with ladders of opportunity.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think Chinese readers, in particular young readers, they can see the complexity in that story and they're angry at the way the government is simplifying it. And one thing that they can also read from that narrator's view is that there's just absolutely no sympathy for Kong Yizhi at all from any other character in that story. Even the children are laughing at him and mocking him. I think that kind of cold disregard and scorn For people who can't make it, sadly, that's something that a lot of people also can relate to in China today.
1: Yeah, if you're the leader of any country and people start turning to incredibly bleak literature about how cruel and unequal your society is, that's got to be a warning sign. We'll be back in a moment to discuss the solutions that people and the government have been proposing to youth unemployment. But first, we wanted to remind you that you can read about a whole bunch of interesting stuff about China in The Economist. You can read about a diplomatic debacle, Set off by China's ambassador to France and also about the dating habits of China's old people. If you're a subscriber already, thank you. And if you're not a subscriber, then we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer to find out more.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. So we've just been talking about this debate over Lu Shun's Kong Yiji story. And let's take a look at the solutions that the state is suggesting will help graduates to get jobs. In commentary that the Communist Youth League published, they actually praised a young person who, after college, went to the countryside and became a new farmer. They Praise this woman as an example of what Xi Jinping sees as the future for Chinese youth, and the Communist Youth League said, you know, young people need to be willing to roll up their pants and go to the fields and experience different things. At the same time, state media has been publishing a lot of videos of graduates who are doing low-skilled labor. One of these videos that's been spread really widely recently is a state media video about a young woman in Zhengzhou in Henan province. And they show in the video her college graduation diploma. And then they cut to the scene of her packing up big stacks of cardboard and lugging garbage around. Basically, they're promoting her lifestyle choice to go and work in recycling. And she says, I can now make actually five figures from collecting garbage. And she says something like, we shouldn't be shackled by our educational degrees. Office work, it's really monotonous. You feel like you're a machine. And the suggestion here is that this was her choice. And actually, this choice makes her happy.
1: And of course, what you're seeing there is the propaganda machine doing what it has to do, which is trying to make out that it's not a disaster, that there aren't enough graduate jobs. But I think they are deliberately, and I would say a bit cynically, muddling up two different things. One is, should we all respect people that do manual jobs, like collect trash and recycling? Of course we should. But does that mean that doing that job after you've had the state invest a ton of money in your education and your parents invest a ton of money in higher education that you're then not using, is that a good return on that investment? That's a separate question
0: right? So we have state media praising college graduates for being garbage collectors but actually when you look at social media and what people are posting on their own, in some ways it's even more grim. One video that spread really widely in the last few months features two young girls, they were college roommates and they're five years out of school and they're kind of rehashing their struggles post-graduation. And both of them went to a really good university. But after five years of, you know, trying different jobs and struggling with them, the first girl says, you know, I only have 5,000 RMB left in my bank account. And then her friend says, yeah, I did a master's degree. I graduated two years ago. And now I'm working as a janitor in a hot pot restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) And then they just laugh at themselves and they say, you know what, you know, being a piece of trash really doesn't matter.
1: That's amazing. One of them has a master's from one of the best universities in Beijing that's meant to be the catapult to getting a job at CCTV to be an anchor on TV or something. And she had less than 5,000 RMBs. That's much less than $1,000 in her account.
0: Yeah. And I think the reason why this video spread so widely is just that a lot of people found it very relatable because these two young women, they're talking about how hard they've been working, how hard they've been trying since graduation and the difficulty of living up to the expectations that society puts on them and that they put on themselves. And they think, if I get into this really good school, it should launch me on this path to a better future. But then they kind of land on this note where they say... Ultimately, like, we've tried so hard and we are so tired and we have failed despite all the things that we tried. And you know what? We've accepted our failures. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the girls actually says, you know, once I accept my failure, it's not scary anymore. You know, at least when I'm working at the hot pot restaurant, I know I won't starve to death.
1: But isn't this lying flat, that idea of dropping out of the rat race and just giving up and accepting a low-income, low-stress life? And I thought the Communist Party and the government really hate when young people talk about lying flat. They want them to be full of positive energy.
0: Yeah, you're right. I do think it's quite a lying flat-esque video. But actually, after this went viral online, that university that these two women went to actually issued a new article saying, oh, These two graduates, they're not lying flat. They're not complaining. They're not giving up. Do they have confidence? Yes, they do have confidence. They are still these positive energy youth. So I think that just really shows that even the university was worried about this phenomenon and wanted to show that, no, 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 our graduates, they're still following the way that China wants its youth to be.
1: That is amazing. I mean, you know, it's an extraordinary kind of pickle that the (laughs) authorities have got themselves into.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's funny, but it's also frustrating, right?
1: Yeah. So in the Chinese context, if someone who has gone through that pain and suffering of studying hard and staying up late and not going out to see friends and getting those good scores, if that ladder of opportunity that you just talked about, Alice, if that's kicked away, then in some ways, something kind of morally outrageous is happening. So this is kind of beyond a kind of economic subject about, you know, oh, youth unemployment is high. I wonder what would be the macroeconomic effects. This is about Chinese society being perceived to be fair and just.
0: From the perspective of these really exhausted young people, the state just cannot acknowledge their reality and cannot allow them to say, you know, I'm frustrated and I'm fed up and I'm exhausted and I want to take a break. The state is like, no, 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 no. You are the future of China. You are the future of China.
1: Yeah. And you know, another way in which this is all really, to me, very unfair is that if the propaganda machine keeps talking about young people's choices and how they need to be more pragmatic and more broad-minded and less snobbish and embrace all these opportunities in front of them. When I've gone off into China and actually done reporting on youth unemployment, young people looking for jobs, they don't talk about the choices they face and how to pick between them. They talk about how there's nothing out there. And one of the things they talk about is that employers... Demand a master's, that employers demand a graduate degree. That is the employers that are incredibly snobbish about credentials, not kids saying, I'm too good to take a low level job because I went to university. And proof of that is to go to a place like a vocational school, the other track of higher education in China. Now, Alice, you know, you know really well that basically about 40% of kids in China, through their schooling, they take exams in the middle of middle school and then at the end of high school that send them down two tracks, an academic track or a vocational track. It's a bit like going to, I guess, technical college or community college. And you end up with one of these community college degrees, a vocational school degree, and a lot of employers won't look at you.
0: Yeah. So it's almost like if you want to use the Kongizhi analogy, going to university is supposed to be your path to be a scholar in a long robe. But going to vocational school allows you to put on a short jacket and do a different kind of labor.
1: That's right. And look, you might imagine that going to vocational school when the economy is shedding lots of service sector jobs might be actually a really smart thing to do because you're learning real skills. Actually, China's manufacturing sector did pretty well during the pandemic and lots of factories say they're shorter technicians and young staff. But I actually went to a vocational school in Jiangxi a few months ago for a column and found that for the kids at the Jiujiang Technical and Vocational College, it does not feel like that at all. When
0: you actually spoke to the students in those vocational schools, what did they think about their own futures and their opportunities?
1: So they were really blunt about a couple of things that actually took me by surprise. One was they might study things like fixing cars or, you know, IT technician. They sound like they're on the track to get a good job, but they didn't choose those majors. That in the Chinese system, you get assigned to a major based on your exam scores. And a bunch of the kids I spoke to when I said, so how come you ended up learning to repair electric cars, or how come you ended up in IT technicians? They said, because our scores were no good, and we ended up shunted into this course that I don't enjoy, and I don't want to pursue when I get out of college. And so the whole system is actually so much more constrained by the scores that you get.
0: Yeah, I mean, was there anything, especially revealing, that they said about their lack of choices?
1: So I talked to a bunch of kids, and they did offer the joke that computer science majors from... The best university in the country, like Peking University, can't actually fix a computer. So in some areas, they might be more useful to an employer. But they know how they're seen, and they know what their credential counts for in the workplace.
0: Right, so you can hear the vocational school students say, you know, even we think that university is better than vocational school.
1: And to be honest, Alice, the government is sending mixed messages because there's any amount of commentaries and statements saying vocational education should be just as respected as academic university education. But if you look at what provinces are investing in and the support that they're offering to young people, they are sending a very clear signal that they don't think vocational credentials are enough in a tough labor market. So, for proof of that, the province that I was in, Jiangxi, there's a very specific exam that allows you to bridge between a vocational university to cash in your credits from that. You take a test and you can get into an academic university. It's called the Zhuangshan Ben. That exam used to be really rare. So before the pandemic, when the labour market looked a bit better, Jiangxi allowed just under 3,000 students a year to take that test and to go through into the academic system. In 2021, with youth unemployment spiking towards the end of the pandemic, Jiangxi was offering a quota of 42,000 students we're allowed to try and leave the vocational system and get into the academic university system.
0: That reflects probably really high demand for that exam, but also the Jiangxi government's recognition that this is the path to a better future for young people and perhaps to more growth for its economy.
1: That's right. Look, China has been promoting a massive expansion of its university system for years and years and years. It's one of their proudest posts. And they're not alone. Lots and lots of governments around the world are talking about upskilling and getting more, a higher percentage of young people as graduates. Yeah,
0: but the problem now is that there are so many graduates. And in fact, this year, there's expected to be more than 11 million college graduates, a record number. And there just aren't enough jobs for those young people once they come out of school. But there are also signs that the Chinese government is well aware of this and is trying to think of ways to address it, right? There was this circular that came out from the State Council on April 26th about improving the employment situation.
1: That was really interesting, wasn't it? It was like a laundry list of things that we've seen before, but done with more emphasis. And they're not bad ideas. I noticed this kind of push. You don't have to work in a coastal area. You can go inland into the West, offering companies kind of subsidies if they take uh, recent graduates who've been unemployed for a long time. A whole bunch of ways to address this problem that actually, in some ways, you know, I prefer the state council circular because at least it wasn't nagging the kids and telling them it's their fault.
0: Yeah, it was pushing on the companies to provide a solution hire one million interns. That was one of the things that was proposed in that circular.
1: You know, Alice, Chinese young people could be forgiven for saying, well, you know, thanks very much for all the help and the internships. But actually, government policies destroyed millions of pretty good graduate jobs in the last few years.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, the whole tutoring industry was decimated. A lot of the tech jobs have been cut because of government crackdowns on the tech companies.
1: Yeah, let's make it clear, you know, millions and millions of young graduates were working as tutors, teaching kids after school to prepare them for their exams or to prepare them for studying overseas. And because Xi Jinping basically thought that was putting too much stress and strain on parents who are having to pay for these after school classes, the entire after school for profit tutoring industry was basically abolished overnight. The tech crackdown, the platform crackdowns on the big internet companies, those are all white collar graduate jobs being destroyed for very political reasons.
0: Yeah. So it goes back to that sense of mixed messages coming from the government. On the one hand, now you have the state council saying, "Uh oh, unemployment is a big problem. Let's try to do something. On the other hand, you do still have this judgmental state line blaming Kong Yiji. I mean, where is that coming from?
1: I think some of it comes right from the top, from Xi Jinping. You know, there's always a danger, you know, when you're trying to understand China that you turn everything into a story about Xi Jinping. In this case, actually, some of the public statements we've seen coming from the party chief, they really do point to a vision of how young people should think and act that is pretty judgmental. He sounds like a grouchy old guy. So the unbelievably important 20th Party Congress back in the autumn last year, what was Xi Jinping's line about young people? He directly addressed them. He said, you know, you need to aim high, but be realistic, make sure you can deliver. And then straight out of the back of the party congress... He leads his new top team to some red sacred pilgrimage sites, including this canal dug through the side of a solid rock mountain by 300 young people. The Hongqi Canal, the Red Flag Canal, right? And Xi Jinping stood next to the exhibit uh, that praises these young people, some of whom died digging the canal. And he said, younger generations should inherit and carry forward this spirit. They should abandon arrogance and pampering, and engrave the blood of their youth on the monuments of history, just like our fathers did.
0: Wow, David, (laughs) when you're telling these stories, it's so Xi Jinping. I don't know, to be engraving the blood of your youth on the monuments of history, it just reminds me of one time I was doing a story about all these party slogans and stories about how young people must filled with passion and sacrifice for their country. And I remember asking a young guy in Shanghai, a self-proclaimed Tangping youth, I asked him, you know, what do you think about the resurgence of the struggle hard messaging in the last few years? And then he basically showed me a meme with Keanu Reeves, the actor, and a quote from him where he said, I want to enjoy life and not stress myself building my bank account. I give lots away and I live simply mostly out of a suitcase in hotels. We all know that good health is much more important. And then this guy basically told me, he's like, my friends and I, we looked at Keanu Reeves. (laughs) Basically, this is the kind of life philosophy that we're looking at.
1: Yeah, although if you're in a very small town in China with parents who have manual jobs, who've been scrimping and saving to send you to education, a Hollywood film star saying that his kind of version of Lying Flat is to go to a hotel, (laughs) click open his Louis Vuitton suitcase and sort of wonder how much cash to give away, you know, this is not a particularly realistic vision of a society with kind of ladders of opportunity, right?
0: Yeah, that is true. And this guy, I think he was coming from a upper middle class, relatively privileged place. But just the idea of most young people in China may not be as excited about engraving their blood on the monuments of history or sacrificing themselves as Xi Jinping wishes that
1: they would be. And what about their parents, right? You know, I speak as the parent of two university undergraduates, And my career ambitions for them do not include them engraving their blood on the monuments of history. I'd like them to get jobs. And there's a lot of middle class Chinese parents who are presumably thinking the same way. And so we've been having fun with the idea that this short story is back as a meme on the internet. But speaking as a kind of political journalist, that is not good news for the Communist Party. I mean, that short story is basically about a cruelly unequal society where it's all about connections. That's just not a great vision of society. And when Lu Xun described that China back in 1918, he was trying to shock China's conscience, right? He was a modernizer who said, you know, we need to build a much better China with ladders of opportunity. And I think if the Communist Party is saying it's somehow selfish or whiny to want a ladder of opportunity after you and your parents and the state and the government have invested in your education, that's just not a great look. And it looks a lot like a country that doesn't have enough graduate jobs to go around twisting itself in knots to justify why they should settle for a different employment.
0: Yeah. And the irony, I think, is that everyone knows the story in China because it's in the curriculum and it's taught as a reflection of the failures of old feudal society. And so the fact that young people today are, are saying, actually, this looks like my situation right now, that's got to be troubling to the
1: authorities. Yeah, it goes back to something we've talked about before, the social contract of China changing, and how, you know, one of the ways of reading all of that messaging that came out of the 20th Party Congress last autumn was that Xi Jinping is still talking about China heading towards national greatness and the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. But there's a sense that those decades of individual aspirations where, you know, you would pay for tutors for your kid, you'd hope they could study overseas, you'd maybe save up to start a business, that that is being replaced with something much more collective, that the whole Chinese people are meant to march in lockstep towards the national greatness. Mm-hmm. We said before that it's a big risk to change a social contract midway, particularly when actually you're being forced to by the economy changing shape on you. So I do think that this Kong Yiji meme is a really, really important symbol and marker of, of a big political problem that the Communist Party is going to be grappling with long after people have forgotten the latest memes.
0: Let's give the last word to Kong ji And spoiler alert, the story does not have a happy ending. A long time went by after that without our seeing Kong again. At the end of the year, when the tavern keeper took down the board, he said, Kong ji still owes 19 coppers. At the Dragon Boat Festival the next year, he said the same thing again. But when the Mid-Autumn Festival came, he did not mention it. And another new year came round without our seeing any more of him. Nor have I ever seen him since. Probably Kong Yiji is really dead. If you've got anything you want to let us know about Kong Yiji or another story we've covered, or anything you'd like us to cover, you can email us at drum at And can
1: I just say, Alice, that we do get some really great emails from listeners. And so uh, just reading a bunch yesterday, uh, hello to Olivier in France, who mentioned that he started reading The Economist when he was 16, and is now listening to this podcast too.
0: And we got a great question from another listener called David after last week's episode about Xi Jinping's revolutionary models. He asks, to what extent does it make sense to talk about China's position on anything when China is now in effect a personalist dictatorship? China equals Xi Jinping alone, doesn't it?
1: That is a very important question. And so along with the paper we talked about last week by Andrew Waldron at Stanford, where he actually compares Xi to Liu Shaoqi and Mao Zedong, I can recommend another excellent paper by two scholars at the University of Würzburg. And Bjorn Alperman is a professor there, and he's a Drum Tower listener. And he wrote a paper, Xi's Third Way, Illiberal Institutionalization. And that really got me thinking about how if we imagine that one man rule is one the end of an extreme and strong party institutions are a complete polar opposite. That maybe that's a false choice, that maybe Xi Jinping is trying to have it both ways. And so I'll stick both those papers out on my Twitter handle, which is DSO Rennie.
0: Our thanks to Robert Eno and Indiana University, because that was their translation of Kong Yiji.
1: And thank you for listening to Drumtower.
0: Our editor is Poppy Sebag montefiore Alicia Burrell and Barclay Bram produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Lee Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell.